So we are Garden of Wisdom, story of the simple one and the clever one, share number five. So it's been a while. It's also Yom Hazikaron. So let's dedicate the learning to those who fell in battle. May the memory be a blessing. Recap the story so far. We've been introduced to two characters, two friends, two families living in the same area. One of their sons was a clever one. One was the simple one. And that the family fortunes disappeared. They were forced to go into the world and take care of themselves. The simple one stayed put. He became a shoemaker, wasn't particularly good at that shoe, making shoes. The, the end of the shoe was a triangle rather than round. He had absolutely no money, no clothes, one jacket, one suit. His food was meager. Every time he had something, he imagined it was something you know, different to what it was and the same with, with his drinking. Whilst, this, whilst the, cl- the clever one went into the world and he was such a genius that he was able to be skillful and successful at whatever he tried. But as a consequence, he found his life was very complicated, a lot, a lot of pain because he couldn't tolerate anything that wasn't perfect, anything that wasn't the height of fashion or style or, or genius. We've seen all along so far, the clever one hasn't really done anything s- significantly wrong in terms of his character other than his big flaw in terms of philosophy here, because all these characters representing something to us, was in the, in the idea that he could go off on his own without consulting anybody, without consulting wisdom, which would be the Torah, or davening to Hashem, which is really the focus here, and think he can do it by himself led, leads to his undoing and the catastrophe. Well, the simple one is just delighted, earning pennies for the job that, other, that his friends are making more money for, it's like, what's the point? If people want to make fool, make fun of me, then more fool them. Everybody knows that I'm a simple one. So if they're making fun of me, then they're more simple than I am because what's there to make fun of? So actually, you know, anyone that sort of scoffs is, is silly. And that's where we left it. Plot twist, story twist tonight. Very exciting. In the midst of this, a great commotion arose that the aforementioned clever one was traveling and coming home with great status and intelligence. So the boys, are, the, 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 the prodigal son that left all those years before is returning to the village that, where he came from. The simple one who hadn't seen his friend in ages ran like the others to greet her and with great joy. And he said to his wife, quick, give me the suit jacket. I'm going to greet my beloved friends. She handed him the fur coat, because that's all they had. And he ran to greet him. And the clever one was traveling in a royal carriage in a high style. Simple one reached him and lovingly, joyously said to his friend, Now, my brother, my dear friend, what are you doing? Blessed is the one who brought you and granted me the privilege of seeing you. Now for the wise man to whom the whole world was just insignificant, it was all the more so with a man like this, who seemed like an idiot to him. But in spite of this, and because of the great love of their childhood years, he drew him close and they traveled together through the city. The two householders mentioned at the beginning, the fathers of these two sons died while the clever one was wandering through the various countries and their houses remained. The simple one who had remained in his hometown had moved into his father's house and inherited it. But the clever one, who had been abroad and had no one to claim it on his behalf and it became abandoned and ruined and nothing was left of it at all. So the clever one didn't have, had nowhere to stay. He lodged in one inn and suffered so much because the inn was not according to his desire. The simple one had found a new pastime. He would run backwards and forwards from his house to the clever one with love and joy. He saw the suffering of the clever one was enduring. He said, listen, my brother, stay in my house. 
I will gather everything of mine into one little corner. The rest of my house will be free for you to use as you wish. This pleased the clever one. So he came to the simple one's house and stayed by him. Now, the clever one was constantly filled with agony. It became known that he was magnificently intelligent, a craftsman and a very great doctor. So one nobleman came to him and asked him to make him a gold ring. He made the man a very wondrous ring and engraved on it designs with incredible workmanship. He engraved the image of a tree that was very wonderful. The nobleman came and he wasn't pleased at all with the ring. The clever one had so much suffering from this. He knew that if he, if he would take that ring in Spain, where he'd come from, he would be so honoured and it drove him crazy that these people couldn't appreciate workmanship on the level that he was able to produce. And so another time a great nobleman came to him with an expensive precious stone that came from far away and he brought him another stone with an engraving. He said, please, can you copy one to the other? He did so exactly, but... He made one tiny mistake that only the clever one could, could notice. The nobleman came to receive his gemstone and he was very, very pleased with it. But the clever man suffered so much. My wisdom is so great and I made a mistake such as this. Also from his work as a doctor he suffered. When he came to a sick person and gave him a treatment and he knew if the man would, take, would only survive the treatment, he would be healed entirely because the treatment was an amazing one. Then afterwards, as the man died, everyone would say that he was at fault. So he suffered from this as well. And thus, there were times when he treated a man and cured him, and everyone said it was merely a fluke. And he was constantly filled with suffering. One time, he needed a garment, so he called a tailor and toiled with him until he taught him exactly how to make the clothes that he liked. The tailor strived to make the garment according to his wishes, and he did so except one lapel, which he made a mistake. It wasn't perfectly aligned. The clever one suffered exceedingly from this, for he knew that although here it was an attractive piece of clothing, if he were in Spain with that lapel, he'd be the butt of jokes and would be looked at as a charlatan. So he was filled with agony constantly. And the simple one would run and come to the clever one joyfully every time but found him pained and full of suffering. He said, someone so intelligent and wealthy as you, why are you suffering all the time? See, I'm filled with joy. However, he appeared in the eyes of the clever man as a joke and he seemed like an idiot to him. And the simple one said, you see, the people on the street who mock me are fools. If they are more intelligent than me, then on the contrary, they're the fools for mocking me. And even more so, a clever man like you. So what's the consequence if you would be more intelligent than me? And the simple one said, what would I not give for you to come to my level? The clever one said, that is possible that I will come to your level. If I were to lose my intelligence, God forbid, or if I became sick, God forbid, and became insane, for what are you? You're a daft individual. But for you to come to my level, impossible that you would become intelligent like me. Simple one said, with the Holy One blessed be he, anything is possible. It could happen that within a blink of an eye, I would come to your level. The clever one laughed at this a great deal. Here's the plot twist. Now, these two young men were known to the world as the clever one and the simple one. That's how they were known by everybody. Even though there are many clever and simple men in the world, in this case, it was these two. Both of them were from the same place, learned together. They've been tremendous friends. And one of them had become this tremendous intellect. The other one was very, very simple. And in the census book, in which were written all the names of the people and their family names, these two were identified as simply as the clever one and the simple one. That's how they were known. Now, one time the king came upon the census 
and found written there the names of these two sons, the clever one and the simple one. And he was desperate to meet these two. But now he's got his in a quandary. If I send for them quickly, and I'm the king, they might be very frightened. The clever one will lose his clarity completely, and the simple one might possibly go crazy from fear. So he decided to send a clever messenger to the clever one, and a simple messenger to the simple one. The only problem was how to find a simple person in the capital. The people in the capital are quite sophisticated. This is not a dig at accountants, but treasurers. <laughs> you might take it as such. Only the minister of the treasury was a particularly simple person, since they do not appoint a clever person as a treasurer, in case through his cleverness and intelligence he'll squander the assets. <laughs> Therefore, they specifically appoint a simple person to be the minister of the treasury. So he's going to be sent to the simple one. So the king summoned a clever man and the simple minister of the treasury and sent them to the two protagonists. And he gave to each messenger a letter. And he also gave them letters addressed to the local governor of the province, under whose jurisdiction the clever and the simple one lived, and told the governor to send his own letters to each one of them, so that they wouldn't be scared when the letter of the king or the messengers of the king arrived. He said, look, it's not urgent. The king isn't saying, come right now. But he wants to see them. So you know, in due course, please can they turn up at the palace? These two messengers, the clever messenger and the simple one, set out and travelled to the governor, giving him the letter. The governor asked to know more about the two young men. They told him the clever one is incredibly intelligent, very wealthy. The simple one, well... He's exceedingly simple, and his whole wardrobe is of one coat, as we've learned previously. The governor surmised that it would not be fitting for the simple one to turn up to the king in a coat, an old coat. So he provided him with the appropriate clothes and placed, him inside, placed them inside a royal carriage of the simple messenger. And he gave the messengers the letters that they set off for the town to see them. As soon as the simple one received the letter, he said, I can't read it. <laughs> what does it say? Read it for me. The messenger said, well... I will tell you by heart what it's written. The king wants you to come. Simple one said, just promise me you're not joking. It's certainly the truth and not a joke. Simple one said, became filled with joy, ran to his wife. My wife, the king has sent for me. What? <laughs> Why? What for? He didn't have any time to answer at all. And he hurried joyfully to travel with the messenger. He entered and sat inside the carriage, found the new clothes, and became more and more joyous. Meanwhile, an informant sent word that the governor had behaved corruptly. So the king removed him from office. The king concluded that the governor ought to be a simple man who would govern the state with truth and uprightness. For he, would, he wouldn't allow all types of clever wheeling and dealing. The king decided to make the aforementioned simple one the governor of the town. And he sent his royal command to the simple one who he, whom he was summoning was to become governor, was to travel by way of the provincial capital. So the king put men at the gates of the capital city. And as soon as the simple one arrived, they were to detain him, crown him ceremonially with the title governor. He did say to his friend, you can turn around any minute. So they did. They waited there. And as soon as he came, they detained him, informed him that he had now been made the governor. He said, just tell me, you're not joking. They answered, it was certainly not a joke. And he immediately became the governor with authority and might. A little bit more for this, a little bit further. Now that his fortune had turned and a change of fortune brings wisdom, he gained more understanding. 
Even so, he didn't use his wisdom at all, but rather ruled with simplicity and led the country simply with truth and uprightness, without a trace of corruption. To rule a nation, one doesn't need high intelligence and cleverness, only simplicity, simplicity, simplicity and uprightness. When two would come before him with a case to be judged, he would say, you're innocent, you're guilty, in accordance with truth and simplicity. And that's how he did and acted in every matter. He had advisors who were true friends and due to his love, one of them advised him, seeing that you will certainly have to come before the king, first because he sent for you and second because it's customary for governors to do so, even though your conduct is exemplary in the way you rule, it is the way of king to speak in a sophisticated fashion and to speak in other languages. It would be appropriate and befitting for you to be able to respond to the king. So it would be good that I should teach you intellectual dis disciplines and languages. The simple one found this acceptable. Why should I mind learning intellectual disciplines and languages? He thought of the words of his friend, the clever one. That it would be impossible for him to become clever. And now he would be attaining the clever one's level of wisdom. But even though he was clever, he continued ruling with simplicity at first. Got a little bit more to go, but let's learn a little bit about the depth of what the story is about. And we'll come back to the last part of the story before we finish tonight. So we're making quite a long, lot of progress in Rav Arish's interpretation of this story. So let's start with this little bit over here. So right at the beginning of the, of the narrative tonight, what do we have? The, the clever one was coming back. Here we witness the simple one's indescribable good heart. His sincere greeting lacks any trace of jealousy with the clever one's success or status. And we learn, he says here, that a person who is happy with what he has in life, not only do you succeed in, in just being calm and being at peace with your situation, but he wants to, Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman here seems to be connecting happiness with your situation with also being a good person. It, it engenders other qualities in you, you know, good morality and, and good character traits, such as loving his fellow and rejoicing in his neighbour's good fortune. You can't really do that if you're jealous about someone. So, so that the idea of being happy isn't just so you don't grumble, but it actually creates other, other positives in that such a person. The simple one knew that his friend's success had nothing to do with his own life and took nothing away from him, which is another point. So someone else's brilliance doesn't need to detract from anybody else. The simple one didn't have to feel above anyone else in order to be happy. He rejoiced when other people were happy and successful because he was fully at peace and content with himself. But it also means knowing what he what you can't do. What Rabbi Nachman means in, this, in, the, in the early part of the story is like this. When he said that the clever one's house became abandoned and ruined, that nothing was left. The obvious question how? Why should it become abandoned and ruined? It could just be left. Okay, maybe a few cobwebs and a few, you know, just cold, but it doesn't have to be falling apart. It wasn't burnt down or knocked over. Rabbi Nachman is referring here to the spiritual home of the father, the traditions, the life experience and the customs that the clever one's father passed on to him. During his travels around the world, not only did he distance himself from his physical inheritance, he left his spiritual inheritance behind, giving up what he had forever. And here, this is the real issue with the, with the clever one. In his arrogance, the clever one didn't think that previous generations had anything worth learning and preserving. He certainly regarded them as antiquated, unenlightened, unsophisticated, 
Unlike the clever one, the simple one remained in his father's house. He preserved the traditions of the past. His father's home is therefore symbolic of his spiritual heritage. Having preserved the spiritual heritage, the physical inheritance is also intact. We were speaking in school this morning in assembly about having a positive attitude. And the head teacher spoke, he gave his bit, and then it was my turn. I said, look, I don't know how you tell yourself to be positive because maybe you're feeling more negative, but maybe you, want to, you, you can connect with people or see people who can give you that positivity. So I spoke about two people, your father, I did, and Mr. Lax, and I said to them, that at about quarter to 10 on the Shabbos morning, I'm already standing, let's take it in more Jewish terms now. Now, at the Ahmed, Shochenad starts at 9.45 on the Shabbos morning. And so I'm facing the Oran Kodesh. And then I hear tap, 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 the, the walking stick of Mr. Lerner banging on the wooden floor. I said, when I think, and I, when I turn around, I hear the walking stick, it fills you with joy. The first of all, you know, someone of an, of an older age is walking in. Someone that could have a thousand and one reasons to stay in bed Shabbos morning, but has got up and put a suit on and fills you with inspiration from another age where you just didn't pity yourself. You just got on with, got on with living in a way that we don't, don't have today. Then I spoke about your, your dad that when he, you know, when he was 99 coming with his cheeky smile into shore and how special that was. You see someone that again has so many, and then what, what the young people are, are losing today is that sense of, learning from the past. I grew up with people who no one guided me to know that these were like heroes of the Holocaust, someone that's survived with the partisans in the forest. And he was, he was an ox as a, as a, as a young man. And I, I knew met him in his, I guess, waning years. And to me, he was one of the old men. He wasn't the ox that he was. I think it's, that's part of this here. No, it's the, it's the arrogance that comes from a sense that we can only learn anything about life from people today. And if you can't scroll quick enough and swipe quick enough, that there's nothing you can give me in life because life's moved on old person you're not keeping up with technology but there's tremendous amount that not not, not losing that the past and the, and the traditions and the customs and even if they might seem a little bit antiquated to us today there's something in it i think that that, that you, perhaps you only appreciate as you as you get older I was going to say, yes i think we were all like that when we were young yeah, yeah. Bothered with, the, with the old people and the old things and you know, as you get older, you know, I mean, you're only still very young. But as you get older... I'm half of 90. That's <laughs> what I've told myself. <laughs> it's all relative. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, yeah, you do. I mean, yeah. you, you, you do appreciate, don't you? And you see, yeah, you exactly. see your parents yeah. in yourself. You see yourself. Oh, yeah. That's, that's you see scary yourself part. Becoming, becoming your parents. Yeah. It says family history projects. They're the worst from school. You never want to do them. But it's only after you think, well, actually, I can't actually ask them anymore, so... No, if I would have done that more as a kid, I would have had a, res a treasure that we could have <laughs> tapped into. And that's what's really, that's, no, on the broader sense, that's, that's what Rabbi Nachman's saying here, that these two households, it was the homes, it was the, the stability, the traditions that they'd inherited, and the clever one had given all of that up. Someone who forsakes his heritage has no idea what a priceless treasure he is forfeiting. He loses generations of rich teachings, ethics and lessons in life. He misses out on the inheritance of the good character traits that his ancestors worked so hard to obtain. He loses not only the family tradition, but the accumulated spiritual merit of all the previous traditions as well. So there's you know, not just the, the connection in a, in, a, in a historic sense, but there's deeper spiritual connections that, are, that the person's missing out on. Sometimes we see people of ostensibly good character despite the fact they don't particularly invest much effort into becoming a nice person. And it's, it's just to be naturally industrious, honest, charitable. Their good qualities are not merely natural. 
They are the result of years of effort going into the family. You know, we speak about, again, trying to explain, during the break, I had the news on. I think it was during Pesach. I think it was Friday, Erev Shabbos of Cholam Moed. It was like, did you have three days? It couldn't have been there. Must be the Arab seventh day. Must be the evening. I remember I was cooking in the kitchen and I came down. It was I did it early after shul, and there was a news item. It's whatever donating the umbilical cord for stem cells and how people's lives were saved. And I, and the lady was saying like, there's no reason not to like it's going to get thrown away. And here's this piece that could actually save human life. And she was saying that some people just don't understand charity, don't understand giving. It's obvious to us that we've inherited these teachings of giving. Because some people, it's like, it's my money. I worked hard for it. I'm going to spend it on myself. And, and that, they, there are values in society today. When you, when you listen to people talking, and I have to do this for, for the ethics that I teach, you know, different points of view. So it's a shock that something so basic to one group of people in society can be so puzzling and so, so distant to other people. And, then, and when people are doing good, it's not just that you're a good person. It's generations of people saying, look out for others, help others, be there for others, as values that we give you know, naturally to, to, to our children, based on what we inherited from the past. You, know, you all did it in primary school or in nursery. You wanted to give a, penny, a pound at the beginning of the year, which someone went to the bank and got 100 pennies for. And every day you gave your penny in the stocker box and you were trained, like your teachers were trained, and they were trained. And that's, what, that's what's missing out here. A person doesn't have to distance himself from his father's physical home like the clever one did, in order to forfeit the spiritual home. He can sleep in their home, eat their bread, but if, his, if he disdains and mocks the ways, then this, this clever one has actually been very foolish because he's lost, lost the connection to the past and lost what he could have very you know, definitely achieved. A person desired to make his own decision. That's very natural. You know, we all know young people want to do that. We all want to do that with his own intellect and build everything from scratch the way he wants to. says of Irish is utterly foolish. Even a person with a magnificent mind would require decades to discover everything from scratch. Why pave new roads when there are so many good existing highways that will take you where you want to go? A person who starts from scratch while casting away the wisdom of previous generations will never arrive at the truth. Even in the world of applied science and technology, today's achievements are built on prior knowledge and experience. The same is true with, with the writings of the rabbis when they answer questions. They always go back to the primary sources. What does the Chumash say? What does the Gemara say? Can, how can we find connections in thought or similarity in law? Or in legal says, you know, you always, case law always builds on what's come, what's come before. So this wise person, Nebuch, he drove himself crazy. He said, what a contrast. The simple one was happy all the time because he was full of emunah. And this is a repeated thing here. And so Rabbi Nachman, he conveys a powerful and important message. Why do you suffer? Why aren't you happy? Why do you lack vitality? So the wise man is because he's arrogant in our story. Arrogant people are left to fend for themselves because they just don't want to take anybody's help. So they've always got stresses because it's all on their shoulders. They're carrying the burden of everything in life on their shoulders. And they, don't, they don't turn to God. They don't daven. So they're never going to feel lighter. Life provides us with two alternatives, one of two alternatives. Either we choose a life of emunah, humility and happiness. So emunah always links to happiness in these teachings. Or a life of arrogance and misery. This is what Rabbi Nachman is teaching us in the story. It's either or. You can't have emunah without happiness. You can't achieve happiness without emunah. And if you don't have emunah, you're going to be miserable because you're never going to believe that God's in charge. You're not going to believe that God's got your best interest at heart and therefore it's all up to you and 
You're always stressing where, where will the next thing come from. See, the clever one succeeded in everything he did. He had all the diplomas, all the charts on the wall. But he wasn't happy. He had no inner peace. Because he detached himself from Hashem. Despite his facade of fancy clothes and royal carriage, he was miserable on the inside. He lacked the tranquility. And, we, and we, we've all met people or we see people who, who are just like that. They seem to have it all, but have absolutely nothing. And you think, well, if I just had half of what you've got, I could make myself very happy. Now, I, I can't see why you shouldn't be happy. But maybe that's just the way these people's lives have gone. They've, they've made choices and what they've got is actually a curse rather than a blessing. The simple one discerned that divine providence led the clever one to board at his home. At first, because of his simple innocence, he thought that Hashem was doing him a favour. But now he saw that Hashem was actually doing him, doing a big favour for the clever one by giving the clever one a chance to learn from the simple one. <coughs> Previously, the simple one had great admiration. Now it's flipping around. The simple one had admiration for his friend. Then he saw that his friend actually made huge mistakes in his life and it's all miserable. And now it has to flip around that the clever one will admire the simple one, which is a whole different understanding of what's going on here. Because the simple one is such a good person, he feels sorry for his buddy. And that's what we get taught. Simple one said, what would I not give for you to come to my level? The simple one's former, 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 sorry, the simple one's former respect for his friend transformed to pity. He simply felt sorry for him. Says Rabbi Nachman, a person should discard one's intellect and serve Hashem with simple innocence. Now, Rabbi Nachman is now not telling us to be silly. Not to, he's not telling us we shouldn't know anything. He's not telling us to ignore learning or wisdom. But when you try and overcomplicate a situation, that's when things get confusing. As brilliant as Rabbi Nachman was, and despite his magnificent level, he served Hashem simply without any sophistication, without searching for anything. He just did so. The clever one in our story failed to learn Rabbi Nachman's lesson that the simple one, simple and innocent service of Hashem is the greatest wisdom of all. Reliance on human logic and intellect alone is, doesn't work. As we explained earlier, true wisdom depends on learning from everyone. And in order to learn from everyone, you've got to be humble. Otherwise, you'll think no one can teach you anything. You know, look, if you think about that part of the story, it actually just occurred to me. Let's take one example. The tailor who made his clothes but got the lapel wrong. He could have looked at Taylor and said, wow, you know what, you're really brilliant. I've come along with this newfangled way of, of, of making clothes that I learned in the bigs in Spain where all the, you know, you were just in a little simple area here. And you've done really well. Like, I'm really impressed that you've learned to cut the cloth and to sew it almost perfectly. And I, like, like, well done. That's, that's really quite impressive for a simple tailor from a little village. But all he could focus on was why was the lapel not right? He couldn't see any achievements in anybody else, what they'd managed to achieve, and therefore... No, his arrogance gets in the way and people let him down and therefore it wasn't perfect. So now I'm going to be miserable. Arrogant as he was, the clever one failed to recognise the simple one as a marvellous source of practical advice. And he only responded to him with utter contempt. So our friend here, Mr. Simple One, said, listen, anything's possible. And we saw that. And that's really, you know, a fundamental. We see it in the Chumash when life, when when various Chumash stories turn around, or in the Yont of times, you know, to, to live with that anticipation. What does the president say tonight? Just something very. I'm going to share it with you. Oh, it's gone in my head now. In, in his talk at the Kotal for the beginning of Yom Hazikaron, just something very profound. 
but like how Israel has these two opposites. You no, know, there's the, the the one moment you think it's going in one direction, then it goes in another direction. But that's all that that movement, that pendulum, that swings seems to be the lot of the Jewish people. But it's it's more it's more it's more of a comp, it's more complicated a journey than just either or. It's a swinging pendulum between competing emotions. But the clever one wasn't interested in this idea that things can turn around. Clever one mocked the simple one since he always ridiculed others and scorned what they said. He had no joy, only the, st the sadistic pleasure of mockery. So even his happiness, where he was happy, was a sadistic form of happiness. It wasn't, it wasn't real happiness. So that's not going to last. That's not going to penetrate someone's soul and transform them into something. No, a happy being. The, the, when, the, when the simple one said to the, to the king's messenger, like, just tell me you're not joking. It's a bit of a strange response. What, what's Rabbi Nachman teaching us? You know, the, you know, what could he say? Like, come on, get a grip. I'm not really the guy you want. You, you must be confused. I don't think so. No, it's, it's not a response that many of us will say, just tell me you're not joking. And I have tried that with my, my um, electric and gas company. <laughs> tell me my bill is a joke. <laughs> you, don't, you don't really want that much money, do you? That's not really what you're asking for. But uh, the simple one wanted to verify one thing, that the imitation was legitimate and not a hoax or an act of mockery. He knew how the whole world was full of mockery, falsehood and vicious ridicule. Wherever people lack the true joy of emunah, they search for cheap imitations to make them feel good, such as ridiculing others and silly jokes. The simple one wanted no part in such things. <coughs> the simple one had true inner joy and peace. He lived a life of emunah. As such, nothing was more distasteful to him than mockery. He couldn't fathom how one human being could make fun of another. Why couldn't people respect one another? Why compete when each of us has a unique special mission and the, our own channels to get blessings from Hashem that don't clash with anybody else's? On the other hand, the clever one in his total lack of emunah thrived on trampling on other people and making a mockery of them. His only joy in life was the fantasy that he was better than anybody else. So here we have the changing fortune. I'll get back to our story in a second. The simple one's good fortune had begun its ascent. Up until now, he was happy with his, little, with his one item of clothing. Not because he was stupid, but because he knew that Hashem decides what he needed to have and he had trust that he had in life what was good for him at that moment in life. But when Hashem gave him more and better clothes, he rejoiced. Because it was never about the one item. It was about what, what's Hashem giving me now? If I've, been, if I've been given something, then I need it now. I didn't need it before. So now I can rejoice because this is what Hashem wants me to have. Most people experience happiness only when their deficiency has been fulfilled. Such happiness is temporary for it's contingent on outside factors. True happiness comes from within. Otherwise, it can't last. The simple one was genuinely happy before he received the new clothes. Once he had the new clothes, he continued to be happy, since he was always content with his lot. His happiness was unconditional and unending. He knew that whatever he needed, Hashem would provide just when he needed it. In contrast, the clever one, by attaining a new height of arrogance and ingratitude towards his humble friend and host, shortly thereafter began his freefall, losing money, losing his status, and eventually losing his mind. So let's see how that turned out for the poor clever one. It's quite miserable, actually. The story goes, it's quite, it ends up being quite sad for the, just a spoiler alert. You know, you, <laughs> I, we might want tissues for the last, couple, the last episode. 
Now, the aforementioned clever one, when he received the letter from the king, answered the clever messenger. Obviously, this bit's really funny. He says, wait and stay here tonight, and we'll talk in tomorrow morning. In the evening, he made him a lavish meal. During the meal, the clever one rationalized with his wisdom and said, what is this that a king such as this would send after me? A king like this, who has an entire government and such grandeur, and I am such a lowly and disdained person in comparison to such a great and awesome king. How could it possibly be logical that the king would send for me, someone as lowly as me? Now, obviously, the king is Hashem, and the idea is that what does Hashem want me to, like, what do I need to be in this world for? What can I possibly do? What's the point of me? If it's because of my wisdom, what am I, what am I compared to the king, who's much more wise? And doesn't he have lots of wise men? The king must be wise. How could he want be that he's sending for me? But the clever one said, listen to what I say. In my opinion, and it's certainly a clear and established fact, the king actually doesn't even exist. There is no king. The whole world is mistaken, believing that there is a king. Consider it. How could it be possible that all the people of the world would allow themselves to depend on one man who is the king? There is no king. The clever messenger said, but wait, I brought you the letter from the king. Did you receive the letter directly from the king? No, someone else gave me the letter in the name of the king. There you see with your own eyes that my words are correct. There is no king at all. Tell me, you are from the capital city and if there all your life, did you ever see the king? No, a king doesn't make lots of public appearances. The clever one said to him, you see, my words are clear. There certainly is no king. So not even you have seen the king in your life. The clever one, the clever messenger said, if this is true, then who runs the country? The clever one said, I'll give you this explanation. You asked the right person, for I'm an expert, because I've wandered throughout, through the various countries and I was in Italy. The custom is that there, I'll say that there are 70 advisors, advisory, minister, advisory ministers, and they lead the country for a designated term. All the citizens of the country have a turn as an advisor, one after another. And his words began to make an impression upon the clever messenger. And so they both agreed there, there is no king in the world at all. Then the clever one said, wait until the morning. I will show you one proof after another. There is no king. The first clever one rose in the morning and woke up his friend, the clever messenger. Come outside with me. I will show you with total clarity how the world is, mis is totally mistaken. And in truth, there is no king and they are all deeply mistaken. They went to the market and saw a soldier there. They grabbed him and said, who do you work for? The king, he answered. Have you ever seen the king? No. Have you ever seen such nonsense as this? Said the clever one. They approached an officer from the army. Who do you work for? The king. Have you ever seen the king? No. So you see, the matter is clear. They are all mistaken. There is no king in the world. And they came to an agreement that there is no king. Last bit. Then the clever one said, come, one more time. We'll travel and walk around the world. And I'll show you further how the whole world is seriously misled. They went and traveled through the whole, through the world. And every place they went, they found that people were mistaken. The matter of the aforementioned king became like a fable to them. And in every place where they found the world in error, they compared the king to a fable. If it's true that there's a king, then fables are true too, because the king is a fable. So they went and they traveled until their money ran out. 
and they first sold one of their horses and then the second one and so they sold all of them and they were obliged to go on foot and they were investigating people constantly and found them all were in error they turned into beggars wandering on foot and they lost their prestige and they were not respected at all for people did not pay attention to such pathetic characters as they crazy turnaround yes and those are the lessons here again fortunes can change quickly <laughs> don't give up on the past use it to build yourselves emuna creates happiness arrogance heresy creates sadness and that's the recipe for either a happy or a disastrous life and all being well the story ends in this particular edition on page 51 so 10 more pages left of the story we'll see where we take it next time